this psalm was triggered in my thinking about a year ago by two emails that I received in the same week. Each email was from an OMF family in the Philippines, in Manila, friends of ours. And the first email told of a situation where the family had been away on a holiday in a nearby island. And the son had been washed overboard by breakers that were coming in and struck his head very violently against a rock and had a severe head injury. And the rest of the, the email was an account of the providences of God, basically, that as the accident happened, he was laid on the sand, a boat, a small boat came past, and that boat was able to take him to the main beach. And from there, there was another boat going to the mainland. Then there was transport to Manila. They arrived at the hospital. The plastic surgeon who should have been away from Manila happened to be there. And surgery was, was performed, and a fairly rapid recovery was made. And the email ended with the words, isn't our God so good? And part of me wanted to rejoice, did rejoice, in the goodness of God in that situation. But then part of me asked another question. What if it hadn't worked out like that? And that question became even more intense the same week when we had another email from another family it was actually one of many emails that we'd had from a family that was struggling with the leukemia of their 10-year-old lad. They had uh, gone back to the States to get a full diagnosis. They believed that in many ways God was leading and indicating that he was in control of the situation. They didn't know whether they were covered by insurance. The bill was going to be over a quarter of a million pounds to get the necessary treatment, possibly leading to a bone marrow transplant. They found a one in a million, not one, one, it was one in six million suitable donor in the UK who was ready to fly out there. But by the time all of this was worked through, the disease had progressed and the surgery had to be cancelled. And a couple of months ago, the lad is at 10 years old has gone to be with the Lord. And I began to ask myself the question, how are we supposed to handle, how on earth are they handling this long-term uncertainty, which for them went on over a two-year period? How are we to respond to circumstances such as that? How did the psalmist respond to his prolonged period of anguish, confusion, bewilderment over the perplexing ways of the Lord. We don't know the circumstances of the psalmist here in, in Psalm 77. It could be that he's writing in terms of the corporate Israel, corporate agony of Israel, possibly from their exile experience. But it may equally be 
individual circumstances of struggle that this guy was going through that were utterly bewildering him. Things were not working out the way he wanted. And that is surely so often it rings bells with our own circumstances. So I began to look at this psalm in terms of what it might offer for handling circumstances, continuing, as I've entitled this, against the odds, when everything seems to be stacked against us long term, how do you handle such a situation? Uncertain future, health problems, anxieties. And I see here the psalmist making a very, very natural and understandable response to his circumstances. He's grasping for God. Grasping, clutching at God. These first couple of verses, the verbs here suggest that this is a long-term struggle. It's not a short, easily resolved problem. And the psalmist begins by crying out to God grasping for God groping for God praying to the point of exhaustion but apparently no comfort coming my soul refused to be comforted verse 2 does that mean it's wrong to cry out to plead in prayer well that could be hardly the case in light of a text like Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7 in which we're told that Jesus was heard by God as he cried out, as he pleaded before God. He was heard. Prayer is right and it's natural and it's necessary and yet in a sense it does not seem to bring a resolution to the psalmist's situation doesn't seem to bring an immediate change in his circumstances so he's grasping for God he's crying out to God and then he moves through another stage very natural and understandable stage I've called it pondering the past pondering the past the suffering psalmist cannot grasp present help, it eludes him escapes him so he turns to the past, have you ever done that? when the pressure's on and you're bewildered you turn to the past, but the situation seems to be no better verses 3 to 6 he's groaning he's sleepless, he's confused he's in a state of doubt He's unable now to verbalize prayer. And these songs in the night, verse 6 there, I remembered my songs in the night. Probably a reference to happier days in the past that the writer recalls during the long sleepless hours of the night. And yet those musings still fail to bring comfort. In fact, pondering, musing can lead on to regrets. The triggering of regrets about the past. If only 
I had done this, if only something else had happened, just a slight shift in the circumstances, might have made all the difference. But they didn't. It's a normal, it's a natural, understandable reaction. And it leads on to the third phase of his struggles, which is doubting of the divine. Verses 7 to 10. Remarkable section of the passage. These verses have been described as the litany of those on the edge of despair. The litany of those on the edge of despair. What's happening here in this this section? It is remarkable. The psalmist is systematically going through the Old Testament features of the God of Israel. In effect, he's listening and expressing the characteristics of the God of Israel. His favour, you can see them there in verses 7, 8, 9, his favour, his covenant loyalty, his promise, his mercy, his compassion. The very attributes of God and yet in, the, in his anguish, the psalmist is challenging the revelation of God in the Old Testament. He questions every facet of God that he's ever known, ever been taught, ever experienced. And that is what happens when the screws are on and we're in struggle and anguish and despair. We question the very nature of God. He's hurling out questions about God. The implication maybe is that God has changed. Maybe God was once like this. Maybe once he was compassionate and faithful. But now he's changed. Now he's failed, the psalmist. And he piles the questions into God, one after the other. It's a line of questioning that is very normal, and yet, in a sense, does not resolve the struggles of the psalmist. I find this very... I, I'm still working through my response, if I'm honest, to these verses. Because I think they're significant. All of us come across Christian people who hold to particular traditions, which say, for example, you shouldn't cry out where God is concerned. You shouldn't be crying, you shouldn't be grieving, you should be expressing your faith, your positive faith. Well, the psalmist has failed there because he's in tears. Repeatedly in tears. He's pleading for God. He's also thinking of the past. And there are those who would tell us, don't dwell on the past. And in a sense, they're right. But when the chips are down, when the pressure is really on, it is normal and natural to start looking backwards at what might have been, what has been good in the past. And certainly there are believers who would say to us, never ever question God. The question why should not be in the Christian's vocabulary. So I've been told on occasion in the past. And here we have the psalmist piling in questions about the very attributes of Almighty God. And he gets away with it. 
he might be guilty on these three counts, the weeping, the mourning, the, the thinking through the past, the questioning of God. He might be guilty according to current evangelicals or certain evangelical tradition. The amazing thing is that scripture does not hold him guilty in this area. These are phases, I believe, that are understandable, natural, indeed necessary to go through in anguish and despair. But there is a change that takes place. I see it not in the circumstances. I see no guarantees of sudden changes in the circumstances, a sudden healing, for example, change of fortunes. I don't see that here in the text. But I do see something happening in verse 10. It's the struggles of a man of God, his earthly struggles, and yet built into this, there is a divine dynamic that is leading him through this struggle and will lead us through our struggles. What is it that might help the psalmist to cope with his despair, to handle his circumstances. I see it in verse 10. The first glimmer of hope. Then I thought. It's very significant. Then I thought. He's beginning to get the grey cells moving. He's beginning to employ his mind. He's beginning to recall the past, but this time, past realities. He's examining the evidence. He's facing the facts. This wounded, hurting soul appeals to the past faithfulness of God. Verse 10. I will appeal the years of the right hand of the Most High the right hand of God, symbolic in Scripture, of God's power and His readiness to deliver. To deliver His people from their distress. And the psalmist begins to think the past into the present. And as he remembers, he's drawn towards God. Something is happening here in the psalm. Even the pronouns begin to change. Did you notice there the first nine verses of Psalm 77 are dominated by the first person singular, I. And he also. But mainly I. But then from verse 10 through to the end, it's full of you and your. Now he's speaking, he's beginning to speak to God about God. And the objective facts of faith begin to emerge. The writer, this psalmist, identifies three strands that recur again and again in Scripture. Throughout both Testaments. Have a look at verses 10 through 13. He's recalling the works of God. The works of God. And as he recalls God's works, the psalmist rapidly concludes that God is great. He is great. 
in deeds performed. How has God shown himself in the past? This vast cosmos, this universe is the work of his hands. Now he didn't have the benefit of some of the scientific measurements that are available to us. I'm told, not a scientist myself, I'm told that light travels at about a thousand million kilometers per hour. A thousand million kilometers per hour. How long does it take for the light to cross the universe? Well, my answer would have been probably an hour or two. The answer is apparently 15 billion years traveling at a thousand million kilometers per hour. The vastness, the hugeness of God's works begins to dwarf the struggles of our psalmist. He's beginning to see things in perspective. The works of God. And he moves from the works of God. He begins to think about the power of God. From verse 14 through to 19. Not only did God create and uphold this massive universe, but he also redeemed it. He redeemed it. He bought it back. And here the writer recalls the pivotal time in Israel's history when God delivered his covenant people from the hands of their Egyptian pursuers. He delivered his people at the Red Sea. And the psalmist records this here in some detail. At a time when his people were utterly trapped, stuck, in a mess, without hope. All else had failed and there was no way out. And God moved. God moved in power. Not only did God create this universe, but he controls it totally. And he works out his redeeming purposes for it. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you and ride. The waters probably here, not only the literal waters of the Red Sea, but also the historical waters in the sense of the, the other nations that were continually opposed to Israel and threatened Israel. God had delivered his people physically, nationally from danger. God had been their protector. But why? Why should God be their protector? This God of all works and God of power, why should he protect his people? There is the answer. Because they are his people. And the psalmist reflects, verse 20 there, the compassion of God. Not only the works and the power of God, because that could be almost frightening, almost impersonal, the works and the power of God, if it were not also for the great, overwhelming compassion of this God. Verse 20, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. The psalmist can now bring himself to declare that God is his shepherd. Even in the agony that he's going through, he can affirm 
that God is his shepherd. The God who showed his power among the peoples, verse 14, is also the God who led his people like a flock. The psalmist is using his mind. He's recalling creation, redemption, and the covenant care, the compassion of his God. This God is personal. Not only is his revelation true, but there's only one possible consequence of that, of the works, the power, and the compassion of God, and that is that this God is actually trustworthy. Even in the darkest hour, the darkest moment of this man's life, God is trustworthy. What is God's concern in this psalm? What is God actually trying to do? I believe he's got one overwhelming, overriding concern, not only in this passage, but throughout Scripture and in our experience of Scripture, and that is his relationship with us. That is the number one, and our relationship with him. What is God trying to do to the psalmist, with the psalmist, through such dire circumstances, whatever these difficulties were? I believe this, that God does not want to see the psalmist sinking into regrets about the past, because that is desperately easy to do, sinking into the mire of regrets about the past, or spinning into the vortex of self-pity. Have you ever done that? Or pining for happier days in the past, or pursuing God as a solver of all problems, though God is perfectly capable of doing that, God's purpose, I suspect, strongly in this passage, is that he's using all means possible to drive the psalmist to rest his soul in God's revealed truth. And thereby to rest his soul in God as his only hope. See, there was a time when he believed that God was part of the problem. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favour again? The reality is that God is his only possible solution. And our only possible solution. God is working with the psalmist's life. There's a, there's a living dynamic in this passage. He's driving the psalmist to rest his soul in God's revealed truth because that is the only rock that the psalmist has, the only one. And that is how those in anguish are able to live within their circumstances by reflecting on the works, the power, the compassion of God. Notice I say live within circumstances, not fully understand circumstances. Verse 19b is a glorious, glorious verse. Your path led through the sea. 
your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. Though your footprints were not seen. God was mightily at work in the Exodus, but in a real sense beyond vision. I suspect we have a problem in this area in recognizing the mystery of God and in recognizing that there are areas of our life that we do not understand. I recall speaking to to a friend who was doing his doctorate in Sheffield at the same time as me, a Nigerian guy, and after four years of studying Corinthians, he was ready to go back to Nigeria to take up his position in teaching, in working in the Nigerian church, and I said to him, what would you say to your students in the college, to people in the church when they ask you questions? You've done four years of study here on one book, the Bible. What will you say when they ask you questions? And he said to me, I will say to them that I now feel adequately qualified to say, I don't know. I haven't got a clue what is the answer to your question. And I suspect we have struggles as evangelicals because we are supposed to be, and rightly so, people of conviction, certainty, confidence, assurance. And we find it a struggle to handle uncertainty or doubt sometimes almost as if God will be discredited by the fact that we cannot understand his ways and other people will see we cannot understand what's going on in our lives. And here's a point at which the psalmist recognizes his ignorance. He doesn't know. And sometimes we need to conclude with the psalmist we simply don't know what God is doing in a situation but in a real sense It doesn't matter. There will be patches of our lives, maybe for some of us extensive areas of our lives, on which our verdict will have to be, I do not understand this. I don't understand the ways of the Lord. It is then that we can seek grace to recall Scripture, Experience, because as we dwell on the works of God and the power of God and the compassion of God, we'll then be more able to handle the mystery of God. We'll be able to trust in the midst of anguish. How is it possible to trust the Lord in the midst of uncertainty? and agony ultimately the answer has to be that the way is open because there lived one who followed the path of submissive obedience in agony the answer to Jesus prayers from that text in Hebrews that I mentioned earlier is set in the context of the submissive obedience of Jesus to his Father's will. 
how are we to connect? We're in 2004 in Edinburgh. How are we to connect with this psalm, this ancient writing? The works and the power and the compassion of God were supremely revealed in his Son. In agonies that are beyond our comprehension. Absolutely beyond our understanding. The extent of his anguish and pain. Scripture finds its ultimate focus and it's our touch point here with this psalm in the suffering of the Son of God. Three hours, just three hours in eternity during which the pain and the anguish and the guilt of humanity because of its sin and rebellion were laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The sinless one paying the price for our sin. The judgment of God the Father falling upon us through his Son. His Son standing in our place. And through that redemption, the freedom that we now have was bought at enormous cost. That freedom is for all who will run to Christ, plead forgiveness, and be transformed by the living Christ. The psalmist saw something of the works and the power and the compassion of God. We see it supremely with New Testament lenses. That experience is available to us in Christ. And our call is to respond to that great redemption. To submit in obedience to revealed divine truth and to be set free to be transformed we can activate and this really brings us right back full circle to this morning's passage we can activate the resources that we need for our darkest times in Christ he has all the available resources that we need 